Hi there, lovely people, and welcome to Bloom and Gloom, where we discuss the weird and wonderful world of plants. Today, I'd like you to imagine you're a 14-year-old boy. The April air is crisp against your skin. The sounds of light laughter and twigs snapping underfoot cut through the quiet surroundings of Hagley Wood. It's 1943, and you're joining your three friends on a quest to find some bird eggs as an escape from the tense boredom that accompanies life in a small English town during the war. As you round the bend, the wiry tendrils of a giant elm tree reach towards you, and in every other direction. Its branches are splayed out like the limbs of a sea urchin, washed ashore and dried. This tree, however, doesn't look displaced. It's claimed its ground, simultaneously warning you to retreat and beckoning you closer. The sharp scatter of branches does provide the ideal opportunity for nimble birds to make a safe nest. You decide with the encouragement of your friends to inspect the tree's bizarre form in search of eggs. As you navigate the spires of the witch elm and reach your point near the top, you see that it is in fact hollow. The light catches on something deep inside the cavernous trunk. It's porous, alabaster, and similar to mallard eggs. There looks to be the makings of a nest around it with soft clumps of vegetation and twigs. As you look closer, however, what you thought were speckles on the eggs start to take shape. Teeth protrude from the darkened leaf mass, and what was once a nest now forms clumps of dark hair. Looking up at you is the flesh bare form of an abandoned human skull. So this is our first full episode for October, my birthday month. This weekend I'm going to do an escape room that's themed like the Warrens Museum and watch a scary movie, have a couple of pints, just have a really great time. I'm looking forward to it immensely. It's spring here, so the weather is warming up a bit, much to my displeasure. But regardless, the Halloween decorations are out, we're not far from Christmas, and things are good. I am going to be on placement most of November and December, so the podcast will be going on hiatus in November. But before that, we've got the goods. I also wanted to shout out our listener, Elijah. Thank you so much for your kind words. I don't know if you're on the Instagram, but don't worry. We do indeed have an episode planned for Detura coming up soon. And thanks to everyone else for your support as well. I really honestly thought that my sister would probably be the only person to regularly listen to this. So if other people are enjoying it, that's great. I had a massive response from the Canadian listeners on last episode about Crooked Bush. You guys were loving it, so that was great. But this one is for my English listeners, specifically you Brummies. And believe it or not, there is more than one of you. Without further ado... Let's get into the details of today's case. Who put Bella in the witch elm? Now, before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about the mysterious witch elm tree. As deciduous trees, they undergo seasonal changes, shedding their leaves during the autumn months. This process is known as leaf abscission, and it's a vital adaptation that helps them conserve water and energy during unfavourable conditions. As the days grow shorter and temperatures drop, a layer of specialised cells forms at the base of each leaf petiole, which interrupts the flow of nutrients, causing the leaves to fall. Witch elms propagate primarily through wind-dispersed seeds known as samaras. 
Samaras are also called winged seeds or helicopters, and they are actually the fruits of elm trees. They consist of a seed encased in a papery wing-like structure, and this wing allows the seeds to be dispersed by wind over relatively long distances. The development of Samaras in elm trees is a classic example of adaptation through natural selection. Over evolutionary time, trees with Samaras had a distinctive advantage over those that solely relied on gravity to disperse their seeds. Samaras can travel much farther, increasing the chances of seeds finding suitable conditions for germination and growth. When released from the tree, the papery wing acts like a miniature glider, allowing the seed to be carried away even by a pretty gentle breeze. This adaptation helps elm trees colonise new areas and expand their populations. Elm trees, including witch elms, are typically found in a variety of habitats, from forests to open fields, and the ability to disperse seeds via samaras allows them to adapt to different environmental conditions. This promotes genetic diversity within the species, and because of the wings on the samaras too, it actually makes them more difficult to consume for predators who want to access the seed inside. Anatomically, they can reach heights of about 30 to 40 metres, and their crowns are composed of very dense network of branches and leaves. The leaves themselves are distinctive, sporting an elliptical shape with serrated edges and their dark green colour during the growing season turns into a striking yellow in autumn. Underneath the outer bark of elm trees lies a critical layer called the cambium. This thin layer of actively dividing cells is responsible for the tree's growth. On one hand, it produces new xylem, which constitutes the inner wood responsible for water and nutrient transport, and on the other hand, it generates new phloem, a tissue that carries the tree's sugars and other organic compounds to nourish various other parts of the tree. One remarkable feature of witch elms is their capacity for regeneration. When faced with damage or stress, such as grazing by herbivores or even fire, they can initiate an epicormic shoot. These are dormant buds located beneath the bark and they sprout new growth which allows the tree to recover and continue contributing to the ecosystem. Beyond their individual attributes, witch elms play a vital role in supporting this diversity. They have vast canopies that provide a habitat for numerous types of insects, birds and mammals, and birds in particular rely on the tree branches of elms for nesting. Unfortunately, witch elms have actually faced significant challenges in recent history due to the introduction of something called Dutch elm disease. It's caused by a fungus called Ophiostoma olmi and Ophiostoma novo olmi, and Dutch elm disease has decimated elm populations across Europe and beyond. Bark beetles acting as vectors spread this fungus from infected trees to healthy ones, and basically it leads to a clogging of water-conducting vessels and ultimately the untimely death of the tree. So on the 18th of April, 1943, four young boys come across a witch elm. They're trespassing in a small woodland called Haggerley Wood, looking for eggs when they find this snarly old witch elm. And there are variations in the sources about exactly what type of tree this was. It's famously known in this case as a witch elm, but some sources say it was probably a hazel tree or something like that. I find that witch elms are known for having hollow-centred trunks, and at times they're definitely larger and less shrub-like than a hazel tree. But this tree, no matter what, is very bizarre. 
I'll post a picture on the Instagram, but as soon as you see it, it's easy to understand how challenging it would be to get someone up and inside there, never mind someone deceased. The trunk is hollow, so one of the boys climbs up looking for a nest. Inside the hollow trunk of the tree, he finds a human skull. With some difficulty, he manages to hook it in the ocular socket with a stick and pull it up for a look. On this closer inspection, there was still some skin and hair attached to the bone, but not enough to identify features, with the exception that this person was brunette and had pretty distinctively crooked front teeth. Now, because the boys were on the land illegally, they actually didn't tell anyone what they'd found right away. They placed the skull back where they found it and headed home for the evening. They agreed not to talk about it. However, Thomas Willits, the eldest of the boys, felt uncomfortable keeping it to himself and so told his parents not long after returning home. The following day, Tommy led a group of police officers to the tree that housed these remains. Recovering the remains from the witch elm presented a unique challenge in itself. The opening of the hollow was incredibly narrow, and the remains were tucked deep inside. The body had been placed in almost completely vertically, and this would have been very difficult to do given the shape of the tree and its branches. The body had also been dragged further into the trunk by gravity as decay progressed. When removing the body, authorities had to proceed with great caution to avoid causing further damage to the delicate skeletal structure. They ended up having to mechanically open the trunk of the tree with an axe. Inside, they found and recovered an almost complete set of human remains, along with a single shoe, a gold wedding ring and fragments of clothing. The body was sent to Birmingham to be examined by a pathologist, Dr James Webster, and he conducted some assessments that concluded this individual was a female who had been deceased for a minimum of 18 months. This means she had passed away sometime in or before October of 1941. Now here are some of the weird parts. Oddly, one hand belonging to the deceased was found some distance away from the tree, and a section of something called a tafeta was found in her mouth, suggesting that suffocation or asphyxiation might have been the cause of death. It was believed that this fabric was likely forced down her throat, and all things considered, Bella, as she would come to be known, was considered a victim of murder. There wasn't much information about how exactly she had been put into the tree, but the pathologist did say that due to the position of her skeletal form, she would have to have been placed in the tree shortly after death, feet first, before rigor mortis set in, or well and truly after when the body softens up again. Personally, I think the latter is unlikely, because handling a putrefying body in the way that would have been required to get it in the tree would be... yeah and also bloating. The opening into the tree was really, really small. Of course, bloating can occur more slowly in cool conditions, but rigor mortis overall, in my experience, is a pretty quick process. Rigor mortis itself is actually triggered in the body because of a lack of adenosine triphosphate. So that's ATP, which is the fuel molecule in living organisms. It's needed for muscle relaxation. So when there's none of it, because there's no blood flow, because someone's heart isn't beating, the muscles begin to stiffen. This always happens in small muscles first, because they retain less blood and usually their extremities with lesser blood flow anyway. 
It always occurs first in muscles with a lot of fast twitch muscle fibers like your face and hands. I remember on my first ever nursing placement, someone passed away and their jaw was in rigor within 20 to 30 minutes. I was completely unable to close their mouth. I would swear it depends on the amount of subcutaneous fat someone has. It seems to be slower to set in in people with higher body fat. I don't know if it's just available ATP in the fat stores or it's insulation to do with temperature. I have no idea. But for the body in the witch elm, the important part is that her large muscles would have to have been free from rigor mortis to get into the tree. In October, in the woods in England, maybe two, three hours absolute maximum. So post-mortem or perimortem, she could have also been placed in the tree while she was still alive. But because she was inside the tree, it did create a pretty unique decomposition environment, which made all these things a bit difficult to determine. So authorities didn't have all that much to go on to identify the woman in the witch elm. She's a brunette, small stature, crooked front teeth. The Second World War had obviously caused a plethora of missing persons reports, which made it exceedingly difficult to establish her identity. They did try to cross-reference missing persons, but it didn't lead anywhere, so they pursued another line of investigation and contacted local dentists. Because Bella, as she would come to be known, had very distinctive dental characteristics. She had gold crowns on some of her teeth, which was pretty unusual for poorer people at the time. It indicated that she likely had a bit of money at least at some point. The reason for the initial assumption that Bella was lower class was because of the horrible reality that still exists today. If she had a reasonable amount of money, people would have known her. They would have been looking for her, or so authorities thought. She was also missing a few teeth, some of which had been removed before death and some possibly after. Her front teeth were very distinctive in that the front left tooth significantly overlapped her right. This would have been a noticeable feature in Bella's appearance while she was still alive. So, with forensic technology being where it was at in 1943, dental records were a really valuable resource for identification. However, despite the distinctive dental exam, no matching records were found in the databases of known missing persons. This lack of a dental record was a significant obstacle in identifying the victim. It suggested that either the victim had never received dental care under her real name, or maybe that she was from a background that dental records were not routinely maintained. Another theory, of course, is that Bella was from abroad, as they only checked records within England. Her teeth also suggested that she was likely in her mid-30s at the time of death. They had a look at all her clothes and her shoes. Her shoes were well-worn and investigators were able to identify the type of shoe and where they were sold. They were relatively expensive shoes, but again, they were well-worn. The clothing had no identifying features and both leads really didn't fabricate any tangible information other than her outfit was appropriate for a middle-class lady of the time during the warmer months. Her wedding band, of course, indicated that she was likely married, but it was also not an expensive ring. The other thing that was located near the tree was a female identification card. Investigators got incredibly excited when they came across this because it was the first really valuable lead to who this woman might be. So they go to the address and what do they find? The woman on the ID card alive and well, and with no knowledge of how her identification found its way into Hagley Wood, 
There's no information about other residents of the property or follow up on how or why this card could have accompanied a homicide victim's bizarre burial site. So the investigation is leading nowhere, despite what seems like pretty decent police work for the time. The police start reaching out to the public to ask if anyone knows anything and still nothing. The case is perplexing, but a single unidentified body in a tree is not enough to keep civilian or media attention, given the state of the world. At the start of 1944, England was still deeply engaged in World War II, with the country's population enduring the ongoing impact of the conflict. Air raids by German bombers, particularly over major cities like London and Birmingham, continued to be a significant part of life on the home front. The war effort also included rationing of essential goods, conscription and efforts to maintain civilian morale against the challenges of wartime. There was a lot on people's minds and not a lot of space for a mystery like Bella. So how then did the name Bella even find this Jane Doe? Well, as if this case wasn't strange enough, a series of cryptic graffiti messages started appearing around the area, posing the question, who put Bella in the witch elm? The first known instance of this graffiti was more than a year after the discovery of Bella's remains in Hagley Wood. It was written in chalk on the side of a house in Old Hill, and it read, Who put Lou Bella down the witch elm? The most famous of these was in Upper Dean Street in Birmingham, and stated, Who put Bella down the witch elm? Hagley Wood. This intrigued the locals and captured the public's attention, and led to increased interest in the case. Some people began to speculate about who Bella was, how she died, and who might have been responsible. Some believe it was the work of a prankster or someone with an interest in the case. Others have suggested that the message could have been created by someone with genuine knowledge about the murder or someone trying to draw attention to it. So this graffiti was pretty widespread all across multiple towns in the West Midlands. It appeared on walls, bridges, buildings and other public surfaces in cities, towns and countryside areas. It was deliberately placed in high visibility areas and whoever created the messages, the goal was definitely for them to be seen. Although it is likely, of course, that numerous people, including copycats, were behind some of them, the police analysed handwriting and found the vast majority were by the same hand. They put out advertisements in the newspaper, asking for the writer to come forward and provide more information. They also rechecked all records for a missing person with any variation of the name Bella. Unfortunately, once again, this garnered no new leads. They did, however, come across a report they had somehow missed before of a woman screaming in Hagley Wood around the time Bella was said to have disappeared. Despite gathering a lot of public interest in the case, nothing tangible was gained to identify Bella and solve her murder. It did, however, spark the beginning of a series of increasingly bizarre theories about who she was and how she found her way into the tendrils of the old elm. In Irish mythology, elm trees themselves have a mystic connection to the underworld where they shared a unique bond with the guardians of burial mounds and the enigmatic passages leading to Tiernanog. The unique quality of elm wood, bending and flexing in response to circumstance, gives it an intriguing duality in symbolism, but it made it kind of crappy to build most things with. Elm was used a lot, however, in coffin crafting, 
and medieval Welsh archers fashioned their longbows from elm wood, while their English counterparts favoured yew. Yew is actually one of my absolute favourites. I love yew trees so much. But elms, despite being associated with death and the underworld, also provided medicinal relief from certain ailments like sore throats and wounds. This is because of something in their bark called mucilage, which is a gel-like viscous substance found in various other plants too. Think aloe vera gel, but in much smaller quantities. It's mostly made up of polysaccharides, but can contain proteins and lipids too. And for plants, it serves certain functions like water storage and protection, but for people, when ingested, it can help form a protective and soothing coating on the throat's mucous membranes or in the GI tract. Mucilage is also actually used a lot in makeup and pharmaceutical medicines to bind active ingredients together or improve stability and a few other things like that. But back to elm trees, the term witch in witch elm attests to its pliancy, not in fact to witches, who were actually believed to shun these trees. However, this didn't stop people from associating Bella and the witch elm with darker motives. One particularly chilling theory suggests that her death may have been a result of a ritualistic killing by an occult group. This theory posits that Bella's murder was part of a sinister ritual, possibly involving the witch elm tree, which was believed to hold symbolic significance in ancient pagan or occult practices. Witch elms, like other trees in folklore, have been associated with various mystical and symbolic meanings. In the context of protection, elms have been regarded as guardian trees, believed to ward off evil spirits or protect against harm. They were sometimes planted near homes or used to create protective charms, and on the flip side, the connection to death may stem from their sombre appearance. They did, of course, also mark ancient burial sites, and the idea of rebirth with elms is often linked to the tree's seasonal cycle. So as they shed their leaves in the winter and regrow them in the spring, this symbolises renewal and regeneration. It's also been speculated that Bella may have been involved in some form of dark arts or witchcraft for similar reasons. In an article by David Phelps on the History Press, he talks about how anthropologist Professor Margaret Murray drew parallels between Bella's severed hand and scattered bones and the enigmatic hand of glory, a concept associated with occult rituals and or those of the Romani people at the time. Traditionally, the hand of glory is a chilling and morbid object steeped in the dark world of occult practices and European folklore. Crafted from the severed and preserved hand of a hanged criminal, this eerie artefact typically takes the form of a hand with fingers pointing upward, often used as a candle holder. The candle itself is fashioned from the fat of the executed criminal, adding to its unsettling nature. In folklore, it's believed that when the candle is lit, the hand of glory possesses supernatural powers. It's capable of rendering people in a household unconscious, allows thieves to enter and pilfer undetected, It's also said to have the ability to unlock doors and reveal hidden treasures. So to protect against its malevolent effects, specific countermeasurements such as ointments or charms were believed to be necessary. This was partially fuel to the fire on another theory in this case that proposed that Bella was a Romani woman who had been dealt justice for something within her own community. The problem with that one is that nothing apart from the hand suggested any connection at all to the Romani people, and it kind of put an unwarranted spotlight on their community. A Birmingham Mail article by Mike Lockley 
and good old Wikipedia spoke to the fact that Professor Murray also proposed a chilling connection to another suspicious case, the murder of Charles Walton, who was gruesomely pinned to the ground with his own pitchfork in the neighbouring village of Lower Quinton. To fortify the theory of witchcraft, elements such as the presence of Belladonna, which is also called Deadly Nightshade, and Witch Hazel at the murder scene were found. The reputation of Hagley Woods in itself is also relevant to the context of this theory. The woods have garnered an association with witchcraft through the blend of historical context, local legends, and general superstitions. There used to be a pub near the woods with many alleged hauntings, and this kind of spiralled out into involving the local woods. Overall, the decision to entomb Bella within the hollow trunk of a tree, rather than a conventional burial, basically fueled suspicions of a ritualistic slaying. This notion that Bella had faced retribution for an alleged crime against a clandestine coven captivated imaginations, although investigators ultimately dismissed the theory attributing the scattered bones to animal predation. Personally, I think the witchcraft and occult theory hold more weight than some of the other theories, to be honest. Some believe that Bella might have been a German spy, executed by her handlers after being caught or suspected of espionage, or that she had parachuted in and become lodged in the tree. There are so many other theories that you can explore if you wish. Morbid did a really great in-depth episode on this a while back, and there's lots and lots of books on the case too. The police have never opened their files, and apparently they're not planning on it. So it remains a sad, unsolved mystery. Hopefully someone can locate her remains. Yes, they are currently lost. And maybe do some fig if they can extract DNA. Fig being forensic investigative genetic genealogy like they did with the Somerton man. Anyway, that's all for this episode. If you're still here, thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, feel free to rate and subscribe. Instagram is the main place I post content. I haven't been able to make TikToks at the moment because my two-year-old threw my phone in the paddle pool. And the top right section of the screen does not work. So that's been fun. But I've got a new one and I just need to set the bastard up. Anyway, we're at Bloom and Gloom Pod over there. And thank you so much again for listening. Have a gloomy day. Bye.